the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As a constitutional law attorney, former senior legal advisor and personal counsel to President Donald J. Trump, Jenna Ellis believes in the rule of law and the importance of integrity in our elections. And she's ready to tackle the big cultural and legal issues facing America. This is The Jenna Ellis Show. Here is your host, Jenna Ellis. Hello, friends, and welcome to a brand new episode of The Jenna Ellis Show. It's always great to be with you and have discussions about all the things that are going on in culture and society. And, you know, when I think about uh, what topics I'm going to cover and discuss, there's always so much. And it's not just from what's trending on Twitter to what the news decides to cover to, you know, what's happening in local and uh, federal politics and everything going on in Washington. There's just always so much that we need to be able to analyze as sincere Christians who understand the proper role of government in society. And by the way, my topic uh, for this weekend, if any of you are at Liberty University and the Freedom Uncensored Conference, I'm really excited to be there. And uh, please come and say hi if you're at Liberty University uh, this Friday and Saturday for the conference. But the title of my talk is Government, What's the Point? I'm going to be really excited to talk about that and especially uh, to talk to the students that are there. And if you aren't at Liberty University this weekend, you can also live stream the conference, the entire thing. Many of my very good friends are also speaking there, like Michael Knowles, uh, Secretary Pompeo, Seth Dillon from the Babylon Bee, uh, Virgil Walker and Daryl Harrison from uh, the Just Thinking podcast, which absolutely you need to listen to. They dive really super deep into theological issues. Uh, Ali Beth Stuckey, uh, Liz Wheeler. I mean, just so many, so many great friends who are very... America first, but also God and country first. So you can live stream this event if you're not going to be there at Liberty University. It's at standingforfreedom.com, the Liberty University Standing for Freedom Center. So definitely take time to listen. Uh, I'll be speaking sometime on Saturday between kind of roughly noon and 1.30. Usually these things kind of tend to be running a little bit late. So if you're interested in at least listening to my speech and uh, my talk, then you can definitely live stream that this Saturday sometime kind of noon to 1.30-ish East Coast time. All right. So friends, I also want to talk to you about legacy precious metals because now is time for Americans to take steps to protect your finances and retirements. When times are turbulent, you need an asset that protects you. And that's why I believe in investing in gold and trust my friends at legacy precious metals. Gold offers a hedge against inflation, protects you from the volatile financial markets, and legacy precious metals is a company that you can trust to give you good and patient counsel for your personal situation. 
Their team of experts has decades of experience helping Americans like you and me make the right decision for ourselves and our families. So call Legacy Precious Metals today at 866-528-1903. That's 866-528-1903. Or visit them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com and download their free investor's guide. I have been so uh, thankful to receive a lot of feedback uh, from people who've called Legacy Precious Metals, um, who have taken the time to talk through uh, their personal financial situation and their investments. And it's a really great company. And thank you so much to everyone who always um, provides all kinds of feedback and uh, and, and also just suggestions for what you want to discuss on this show. Uh, one of the reasons I love having a podcast format is because it feels like to me this is just a typical conversation that I would have with my parents or with my cousins. Uh, shout out to uh, Aaron, Kristen, Megan, and Emily. I know they're listening. Uh, my four girl cousins who are totally amazing. And we all have these uh, conversations about life and our Christian faith and government and society and just all of the things that are so relevant to our our life experience and how to walk through this uh, you know crazy insane time in 2021 that we find ourselves in. So one of the things that's going on today uh, and has been going on since uh, actually my birthday on November 1st, so it's been about 10 days minus the weekend, is the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Now, if you listened to me the first day of the trial, I said, listen, the bottom line here is we have to go in as um, as conservatives who understand due process by not making any sort of judgment one way or another until the evidence comes out. So, so many conservatives were uh, definitely, you know, pushing the the banner of saying this was absolutely a self-defense case. And then, of course, you had the left saying absolutely no way. You know, this was an irresponsible kid. I've seen people on Twitter say the most ridiculous things like, how could this possibly be self-defense? Because the law in Wisconsin says that it's only justified if you're in imminent danger of your life. Well, Kyle wasn't in imminent danger in his house in Illinois. So what was he possibly doing in Wisconsin? And it's like, Okay, that completely misconstrues the law. Obviously, that particular Twitter moron had no idea what they were talking about. But the point is, we as conservatives need to make sure we understand the difference between the court of public opinion and a court of law. So now that we're actually into, uh, this probably be, what, about day eight of his trial, um, this is where he actually testified today, and I was watching part of this and saw, you know, Kyle break down on the stand, and also the, which was heart wrenching, and also the cross examination where this totally idiot prosecutor uh, really just kind of, you know, got his backside handed to him. And I loved uh, my colleague Rob Schmidt, who is on Newsmax, <laughs> tweeted and said, this prosecutor is going to have to find another job. And I think that's totally true. I personally was disappointed after all of the evidence had been submitted for the prosecution, the prosecution rests. There is a thing called a uh, motion for directed verdict or motion for um, judgment of acquittal, which basically means that the prosecution has failed not only to present sufficient evidence to fulfill their burden of proof and also burden of production within all of the evidence and testimony that they have submitted when they rest, but also when there is an affirmative defense like self-defense is, 
then the prosecutor also has to uh, prove that that does not apply. So there's kind of a dual uh, burden in that sense for the prosecutor. And clearly, the motion for directed verdict, I, I think the judge should have granted based on not what was speculated and widely talked about in the media, not all of the Twitter, you know, Twitterati that's going around commenting, but what was actually presented at trial, especially the witnesses who talked about how Kyle did not shoot until he was directly threatened and guns were pointed at him. That is a classic self-defense scenario that is actually used in law schools and criminal law all the time. So, um, so I actually think that the judge could have found uh, could have found and seen fit as a matter of law to provide a directed verdict. Uh, but that didn't happen in this situation. Uh, the defense was allowed to proceed, and uh, and now Kyle has testified. And I think the bottom line here, um, my friend Scott Adams, who actually, he's the creator of Dilbert, and if you're not following him on Twitter, he's actually amazingly precise with a lot of his takes. He's one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. He does some live videos sometimes, and um, I don't think he's a Christian um, based on what he has uh, said on on Twitter and some of his live stream and all that. But um, I've been on several radio programs with him, um, and hopefully we'll get him on the show sometime uh, for his take. But his takes in the sense of just commenting on society and a lot of the predictions are totally spot on, and he's one of my favorite people to follow. And he said today, just a few hours ago, that both the Rittenhouse trial and also the January 6th political prisoners, if any of them get prison time, this is going to set a new standard about jailing Republicans as political prisoners. And that is a spot-on analysis. And so what's fascinating to me with these types of trials that are very – much in the public awareness. They have a lot of media around them. And, and I mean, the nation is following the Rittenhouse trial, um, just like they followed, you know, a lot of very high profile trials. Uh, this is something where it's not just the Second Amendment that's on trial, um, and I kind of put that in air quotes, or the actual what happened with Kyle Rittenhouse, but the greater political context seems to be on trial. And that's why the left and the mainstream media is so much in a state of panic right now that Kyle Rittenhouse should be and most likely will be if the jury is actually fair and does their job as impartial fact finders uh, rather than political opinionators, you know, if that's a word, um, political commentators, they should find him not guilty of the offense. Uh, and they should find him not guilty of everything that the prosecution has said. So this is yet another watershed moment in American history and also in uh, the court of law versus the court of public opinion. Because no matter what anybody thinks politically or policy, and we can have these conversations about politics, when it comes to a court of law, there are rules, there are standards, and especially especially for anyone who is charged by the state with a criminal offense. That is the highest standard of proof in American law. And there is a reason why we have this maxim, better to let one um, guilty man go free than to punish 10 innocent people. We have a standard that says the prosecution has to meet and fulfill their burden 
in order for anyone to be found guilty of a criminal offense. And that's regardless of whether or not you like the fact that the Second Amendment preserves our right to self-defense, our right to keep and bear arms, uh, the right that God our Creator gave us. And remember, as we're talking about the Second Amendment, it is not the Second Amendment that provides our right to keep and bear arms or self-defense. That is a right that comes from God our Creator, not our government. And the Second Amendment simply reminds Congress, reminds the government, you cannot infringe on this because it is so fundamental to American life, to intrinsically who we are as human beings made in the image of God. Self-defense and the right to protect ourselves and others, protect life, is so sacred and so paramount that the government cannot infringe on that right. So even if for some crazy reason the Second Amendment was repealed tomorrow, we would still have all of the protections that God gives us in terms of our rights in uh, this area. And I actually wrote a piece for the Federalists. This was a number of years ago, but um, you can look this up, and it's talking about why uh, the Second Amendment needs to be understood in this context. And um, that's kind of an evergreen article, actually, and I've reposted it on my social media a number of times um, in the context of, you know, the NRA and some of these other organizations that always get this flack from the leftists. Um, but definitely go and read that. You can see the, there's an author page on all different kinds of uh, media. And so if you just go to the Federalist, um, search for my name, you'll actually see all the articles I've written for them pop up. And the um, the one about our right to keep and bear arms is actually one of my favorite pieces uh, that I wrote for them. And um, I think this was back in like 2018. And this is always going to be a critical, critical um, thing for we as conservatives to make sure that we articulate precisely and clearly and we don't get into the hype of the court of public opinion and we recognize and value our justice system. Our justice system absolutely is not perfect, but it is one of the best because it provides due process and there are rules. This judge has been incredibly good, even though I wish he had provided the directed verdict because I think there, as a matter of law, uh, that would have been legally sound and sufficient, and I think that would have been a great call on his part. But he has been a great judge and has completely discounted uh, all of the rhetoric and has not let politics come into his courtroom. And one of the things that I actually tweeted over the weekend uh, as everyone was discussing the Rittenhouse trial was imagine if uh, the January 6th committee had interviewed all of the Rittenhouse witnesses and was having this quote-unquote trial in Congress as a matter of, you know, congressional oversight. Imagine what a crazy show that would be, right? Because it would be purely political. It would not be an attempt to get to the truth and the heart of the matter. The rules of evidence would not have come into play. There are so many things about this quote-unquote oversight in Congress that is also vastly different because they are a political branch than in the judiciary. And uh, some people pushed back on that and was like, well, obviously, you know, Congress doesn't hold trails. That's the point. <laughs> Congress doesn't. And it's not a court of law. And this is why during both the first and second impeachments of President Trump, um, what I pointed out as, as his lawyer and as, um, as a member of the legal team, I pointed out that 
even impeachment was only a quasi-judicial proceeding because there was so much political around it. And I genuinely wish, and I think, and I said this at the time, and I still stand by this, I think that the Supreme Court and the judiciary needs to clarify that impeachment for purposes of the of Congress's authority needs to absolutely clarify that this isn't a political game. It's not about using impeachment and weaponizing it as a political tool against your opposition party. Um, this is something where clearly the Constitution provides certain substantive grounds for impeachment, and the House cannot simply manipulate those into their purpose to try to stymie an administration that they don't prefer. The impeachment, both impeachments of President Trump were absolutely witch hunts. He was totally correct about that. And ultimately, um, and frustratingly, there were a lot of senators uh, who stand as the jury. That's how the, how they fit that role that voted based on their political preference and whether or not they preferred President Trump in office rather than based on the actual evidence and the sufficiency of what the House managers acting as prosecutors provided. So contrast that and imagine, imagine if Kyle Rittenhouse was standing trial in front of the U.S. Senate with, you know, Congress members like, you know, Adam Schiff and Kitzinger and Pelosi and all of these, you know, other ridiculous partisan actors were the prosecutors and the Second Amendment was really on trial. And this was just a political uh, TV trial. You would not have the same level of uh, and you wouldn't have a judge making these types of of, um, legal findings as a matter of law and based upon the rules of evidence. Obviously, you know, Chief Justice Roberts presides over impeachments, uh, particularly of the president. That's constitutional. But what's difficult about impeachment versus an actual court of law that is fully judicial, not just this quasi-judicial proceeding, is that there isn't really a rules of evidence manual and the process and the procedure that is set down enough that you maintain the contours of the proceeding rather than making it just a political theater circus. And that's what happened during the two impeachments. And that's what I continue to say on behalf of the president. This is just political theater. And everybody knew that. Uh, but unfortunately, the lawyers had to treat this as, you know, an actual procedural uh, issue and mounted defense and absolutely, you know, that was the right thing to do. But at the end of the day, Congress often in their capacity of oversight, impeachment, all kinds of other things, they act as partisan political actors rather than a court of law which is bound by um, these margins that you have to stay within. And as an advocate and as a lawyer, I actually love the fact that there are rules that have to be maintained in court. There are rules of evidence and there's predictability. Um, so many people in my generation, you know, we all love adventure and we always say, oh, predictability is so boring. Well, you know, maybe you can think that like in the context of a vacation or a relationship or whatever, but I actually think that predictability is a very good thing in all aspects of life and that especially when it comes to advocating within the rule of law, predictability is everything because when you talk to a client and you give them an estimation of their case and um, the likelihood of 
a good outcome and uh, and you're talking through how the law applies. There has to be predictability in that. Otherwise, it's anybody's guess. And how good of counsel can you possibly be? I mean, this is the same thing in not exactly the same way, and obviously hypotheticals break down, but even in the same way how doctors predict often, okay, well, this is how we've seen in our experience this type of medicine work, or we know that if we, you know, operate on this particular, in this particular way, on this particular um, element of the human body, then it tends to react this way. So there is still predictability, and that is the nature of expertise, is that you have predictability built in to your subject matter, to your field of study. That's what lawyers do. And that's why the court of law is so important that we have rules that won't bend and flex to political whim. And that's why the rule of law as our U.S. Constitution should not bend and flex to the political whim of the day and should not be interpreted based on what society now deems acceptable or not or um, how society wants it to operate, but needs to be predictable and have a fixed objective standard. So when we talk about the the rule of law and especially, you know, kind of bringing this now to a 30,000-foot level – We need to understand that the U.S. Constitution operates as a rule of law, not arbitrarily, not politically. And that's what it means to be a conservative, is that we are conserving and protecting that objectivity, that predictability, that uniform standard, and that we as advocates, whether you're a lawyer or not, we can advocate for a rule of law that is consistent, that is predictable that can be understood, that operates functionally in a given situation regardless of politics. That is really important. And so when we also as conservatives talk about a conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court, this is what that means. It means that those conservative justices, the conservative majority, are not going to bend to the whim of politics, whether it's Republican, Democrat, or anywhere else on the spectrum, will leave politics aside and will maintain the objectivity and predictability of the law and the U.S. Constitution. So I hope that the jury will fact-find in the way that obviously since we have been Uh, basically uh, jury members just on the outside, we've been able to actually witness the entire trial. Um, This isn't just through media reports or anything like that. We've actually been able to see the entire trial as it's going, the evidence that was presented, the testimony. It seems abundantly clear to me, if I were sitting on that jury, there is no question that Kyle Rittenhouse acted in self-defense and is not guilty of any of the charges that the prosecution has leveled. And in fact, if the prosecutors were acting according to their objective mandate, which is to do whatsoever justice requires, that's the higher calling of a prosecutor, your client is justice. It is not about your win or loss record. It is not about partisan politics. It's not about making sure you get X number of convictions. It's all about making sure that you do what justice requires. And justice in this instance with Kyle Rittenhouse absolutely means a not guilty verdict. All right, so transitioning to one other story that I think is incredibly important that Christian conservatives have a sufficient 
understanding of what scripture says about this and how we can apply this to government uh, is going to be really important. Before we get to that, I want all of you out there to know that MyPillow doesn't have their box stores or any shopping channels. They have been part of this canceled culture, and they want to pass on the savings directly to you. You can get the lowest price in history of MyPillow for their classic standard MyPillow, regularly $69.98, now only $19.98 with promo code Jenna. That's J-E-N-N-A. They also have queen size, regularly $79.98, now only $24.98 with the promo code Jenna, or king size, regularly $89.98, now only $29.98 with your promo code. MyPillow is not just pillows. They have over 150 products, everything from sleepwear to uh, new beds, promo code. Jenna also works on mystore.com and frankspeech.com. So go to mypillow.com or frankspeech.com or call 1-800-564-8475 and use promo code Jenna, that's J-E-N-N-A, to take advantage of Mike Lindell's special offer on his standard MyPillow. That's mypillow.com and promo code Jenna or 1-800-564-8475. Okay, so... Last week, the RNC launched the new Pride Coalition, and this was something that was widely lauded by a lot of Republicans and even some conservatives to say, isn't this a great thing that we are reaching out and we have this kind of big tent uh, sort of collaboration and um, this is such a great thing. So, of course, I pushed back on this and said the LGBT agenda has absolutely no place in the RNC if they claim to champion conservative values, which they do. If the RNC was saying, listen, we don't have any sort of conservative values anymore, we are simply an opposition party to the Democrats, we are not going to claim to be conservatives, we are just going to claim to have a platform that is based on something else. Maybe it's capitalism, maybe it's based on uh, libertarianism, which, yes, I do contrast libertarian with conservatism, and I'll explain why. Um, if If they were very upfront and honest about that, then at least they would be internally consistent. But the problem that I have with the RNC, among many other things, um, but the problem that I've had for a while with them is that the GOP as a party is embracing leftist agenda and ideas. And so the difference here, and I think where a lot of people uh, just have a mental roadblock here, and are coming at it from the perspective of libertarianism often rather than conservatism, is that libertarianism basically stands for the proposition that government itself is inherently evil. And civil society exists uh, only for the government to provide as minimal of contact with the individual as possible. So it's this whole get off my lawn, government is only there to arbitrate contract disputes, and as long as there are two consenting parties, then anything should be fine. That's how you get to uh, legalizing prostitution, for example. That's how you get to saying government shouldn't outlaw any drugs of any kind. That's the individual's choice. And that's also how libertarians get to this idea of the non-aggression principle when they say, 
Well, as long as there is no harm to a third party and everything is done by consent, then government should not and, in fact, cannot intervene. So it becomes a very sticky wicket for them when they have to actually define harm. And they also then have to define the good life because the libertarians, I'm talking capital L, tend to say, well, I get to decide for myself and my family what is good for me and government should not in any way constrain my freedom and liberty. Well, they're partially correct in the sense that, yes, we do have freedom and liberty, but freedom and liberty also has to be defined. And if government is only the arbiter of contract disputes and consent, then you never have a moral premise that is objective. Everything suddenly is totally arbitrary. And libertarians then end up, rather than the political spectrum being linear and you have totalitarianism and abject tyranny on one side and you have anarchy kind of on the other, it actually ends up almost being circular in its reasoning And libertarians, when you have this totally arbitrary moral uh, flexibility, then it ends up being tyrannical because it ends up being only those who are in power get to decide where the moral lines are drawn. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the Biden administration. So without even recognizing it, the RNC is actually advocating for the very thing that the Biden administration is doing with overreaching vaccine mandates and other things that supposedly the RNC is pushing back against. And so when I was talking actually to a friend about this yesterday, I was saying, you know, um, who who happens to be gay, um, who's a good friend, um, who was pushing back on me very publicly on Twitter saying, you know, this is um, this is something that the, the RNC is basically DNC light because the LGBT agenda is taking a view of marriage, human sexuality and biology and making it morally and scientifically flexible. And my response to him was saying, it's so convenient that for the homosexual community, they want to draw arbitrarily the moral boundary to allow and encompass their particular view of sexual orientation. And they want to um, to say, okay, well, that's that's fine, and that's within the confines of what we want to be socially acceptable, what we want to not say is sin or evil or reprehensible or any of those, you know, negative um, moral judgments. And yet they are willing to also say, like my friend is willing to say, well, pro-choice is not part of the RNC's platform. No, pro, pro-choice and abortion is the intentional killing of of the life of a child, and that's morally reprehensible. And so this very same person who wants the RNC to accept his choice, and, you know, people can uh, have that argument of whether you're born this way, you know, whatever, but he chooses to practice homosexuality, that is a choice, right? We all make choices in life of who uh, we're in relationships with. So he is actively practicing homosexuality, and he wants that to be okay as a moral distinction, but is perfectly willing to judge the moral decisions of pro-choice individuals. He's also more than willing to judge the transgender people and to say that Rachel Levine um, is absolutely a man and to say, you know, biology shows the measurable difference between a man and a woman. 
So for purposes just of policy, this is an internally inconsistent position to say that we want to arbitrarily draw the distinctions around. It's it's gerrymandering morality is what it is because you're trying to arbitrarily define the contours of what is within the moral construct of acceptable, uh, allowed behavior in society that is not morally judged as wrong versus excluding um, other behavior that can be condemned as evil and judged as evil that you don't participate in. So do you see how this ends up being totally arbitrary? The only consistent position for conservatives, and I would argue the only consistent position for the RNC if they want to maintain the fact that they are claiming to be the champions of conservatism, is to have an objective standard on which to base morality. And there is always, always a moral intrinsic aspect to law. Law is inherently moral. We can't escape that. What society allows and what it prohibits, whether it's in criminal law, whether it's in domestic relations, um, human sexuality, all of that. And I'm not saying at all for, you know, those who are listening um, who, you know, may not be fans. I'm glad you're here. Um, but I'm, I'm not expressing the view that we need to criminalize homosexuality. That's a policy conversation. But in terms of accepting and embracing from a policy standpoint, homosexuality, then in, in that vein, the RNC is now adjusting human sexuality from a policy standpoint that is absolutely a slippery slope. Because once we do that, what what is the argument then that the arbitrary moral line shouldn't be drawn around transgenders, to be drawn around any uh, you know, threesomes, uh, throuples, all of these other types of Uh, human sexuality that is not within the confines of what God, our creator, has defined for the purpose of marriage, one man and one woman, for biology, for procreation. Only one man and one woman biologically can have children for the purpose of traditional moral ethics in terms of defining a family. It is one man and one woman for life is what constitutes a marriage. And now have there been, is there brokenness around that? Is there sin that comes into play? Absolutely. And just because God hates divorce, by the way, or hates adultery, um, there are so many different other, you know, sexual sins. That doesn't mean that just because he does allow divorce in some circumstances means that that's his best. So we also need to look at this holistically and not allow the, um, the leftists or, you know, some of these other people to say, oh, well, just because, you know, Christians have gotten divorces or Christians have committed adultery, then that means we can just do away with the standard of marriage altogether. Well, no, that would be like saying, well, some people have committed murder, but so just because, you know, some people have been found guilty of that and that's not God's best, that means, you know, we should just be totally fine embracing all forms of murder. Well, no, that's why there are some things like, for example, affirmative defenses to say, Uh, self-defense or other justifications for killings are sometimes appropriate. And that's in the same way there can be theologically some justifications for divorce. Um, There can also be forgiveness of sin for adultery. There can be forgiveness of sin even for homosexuality and for other types of sins. So when we're looking at the parameters 
of what constitutes this. And my friend even said, he was like, well, what about gluttony? That's a sin. And I'm like, yeah, it is. But is the RNC suddenly going to start like, you know, the the gluttony pride coalition and champion that everybody who wants to be a glutton, that that's totally fine? Well, obviously not. And so this gets into this slippery slope where when we're talking about what the platform is in terms of policy, it matters that we draw a we draw the line in an objective, truthful, and morally sufficient uh, parameter. Because otherwise, if we suddenly gerrymander our morality, then those arbitrary lines will get you exactly to the point that the Biden administration is willing to draw their arbitrary moral line to include saying, I'm going to compel you to participate in a vaccine mandate under the auspices of health and safety, because health and safety and making sure we're all safe is actually humanitarian and therefore it's moral. Do you see how that works? If you can redraw an arbitrary line around anything political and policy, then at that point you lose any argument against any kind of wild uh, theory that the left is going to try to draw these arbitrary lines. And we have, as conservatives, absolutely lost our moral ground if we in any way bend or flex from objective moral truth. And that means it's not my opinion and it's not me judging people who participate in homosexuality or any other type of offense. It's not even me judging people who have had abortions or who are pro-choice. It's all about saying God himself has already judged those things as sin. We know that from scripture. We know that the New Testament, Jesus and also the, the apostles and the writers of the epistles have ratified the biblical definition of marriage and have said that for human sexuality, the only context where sexual relations is appropriate is between one man and one woman in marriage. Anything outside of that is sin. Now, have people participated in all kinds of sexual activity outside the confines of marriage? Of course. Yes. That doesn't mean that the standard or the definition or the morality or the truth of it ever changes. And if you're someone who's participating in any of these activities, you have the opportunity to repent. And that's the whole point. It's not that the RNC as a platform and as a as some sort of champion of conservative values needs to say, well, you know what, it's now socially acceptable, so we're just going to carve out this one exception. Because I guarantee you, if the RNC and the GOP continue on this track and they affirm the leftist agenda and the LGBT agenda, it is not going to be very far down the road until they start accepting and embracing transgenderism and feminism and all of these other, you know, human sexuality, moral, absolutely immoral behaviors because they're going to have to bend and flex to the arbitrary political whim. And yes, this is not about a church designation versus politics. This is all about saying that policy matters, the law is inherently moral, and what our society does with our policies, whether it's with pro-life policies, whether it's with the LGBT agenda, whether it's with the right to free exercise of religion, free speech versus censorship, any of these things, we have to stay grounded in the moral absolute truth that our country was built upon, which says our rights come from God, our creator, not our government, and it's the sole purpose of government to preserve and protect our rights. And if we bend one iota from that, 
we have lost the ability to keep an objective bright line standard and that arbitrary line is going to continue to bend and flex. And that is the reason that our culture is such a disaster today is because conservatives are unwilling to take that position because we don't want to seem like we're hateful or we, oh, sorry, I can't judge. Yes, you can. And yes, you do. You judge all the time. You're just only willing to judge things that don't get you in trouble on social media. You're willing to condemn abortion as wrong and evil and sinful. Why aren't you willing to stand up for the truth of human sexuality as well? We have to stand firm on conservative values and principles because we have to also be biblically based and we have to be objective. Whether we like it or not, it's not my truth, it's his truth. I'm Jenna Ellis and this has been The Jenna Ellis Show. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.